You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health. Feel very best of health. Recent research has shown that the amount of people turning to traditional acupuncture in the UK has risen by around 15% over the last decade, making it one of our most popular complementary therapies. Rhiannon Griffiths is a traditional acupuncturist and member of the British Acupuncture Council. Traditional acupuncture is a form of ancient Chinese medicine that focuses on harmonising the mind and the body and the emotions. It's a holistic practice. It seeks out the root cause of illness and addresses it by balancing internal energy that we also know as chi and we use the insertion of ultra fine needles which are the thickness of a human hair into specific acupuncture points on the body and that regulates the proper functioning and encourages the body's natural ability to restore its own health. Traditional acupuncture is considered to be effective at helping a wide range of conditions really from clearly defined complaints to more kind of general feelings of ill health and low energy. Often patients say that they turn to acupuncture as their focus is on the individual and also the lack of side effects also plays a really big role why people want to come for acupuncture. Rhiannon, doing my research I see one of the major myths surrounding acupuncture is around the needles you use. Before I had acupuncture when I was a teenager I was a needle phobic completely. Acupuncture was off the table, I would never even have considered it but acupuncture needles are so fine and so tiny people think that acupuncture is going to be the same as having an injection and it just isn't. For us less is more. A credible and well qualified acupuncturist will choose their points very carefully so that it's for the utmost comfort of the patient. Though there is a view that acupuncture is no better than the placebo effect, I know that there is scientific evidence to show that it does work. You spoke there of well qualified and credible traditional acupuncturists. What kind of training do you receive and what should those of us looking to try this form of complementary therapy be looking for in a practitioner? A lot of training goes into becoming a traditional acupuncturist. There is a minimum three-year full-time degree level course and that can be BSc or BA. And as part of the course, we look obviously at Chinese medicine and everything from that perspective, but all of the degree courses also include conventional medical training as well. So we have a very broad base of knowledge that we can apply to patients when they come into our treatment room. All members of the British Acupuncture Council are trained to that degree. So you should always look for an acupuncturist who is a member because all members have to adhere to the strict set of guidelines and that ensures that all patients get a really high standard of treatment. We have strict codes of safe practice and ethics. Our insurance is part of being a member. We also have continuing professional development requirements. We are also accredited by the Professional Standards Authority and that offers enhanced protection to anyone looking for an acupuncturist. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. At a time when there's an ever-increasing number of us living with long-term conditions, the correct use of medicines can be life-saving. Yet research shows that when it comes to understanding the medications we have to take, the majority of us don't take the time to learn about what we're taking, how medicines may interact with other prescriptions or herbal preparations, and nearly two-thirds of us don't read the patient information supplied with medication. 
Heidi Wright is from the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. It is really important that you understand your medicine and your health problems so you can get the best out of the medicine you're taking. For example, if you know about the side effects you might experience, this means that you'll have confidence to cope with them if they happen. Obviously, if you don't know about them, you may end up stop taking the medicine. When people don't take their medicine as they should, they don't get the health benefits and they may even get worse and end up having to go to hospital. We know that around 70% of admissions caused by bad reactions medicines are actually avoidable. Heidi, figures show that wasted medicines cost the NHS a staggering £300 million a year, and anywhere between 30 to 50% of people don't take their medication as recommended. I know there's been a concerted effort to encourage both healthcare professionals and pharmacists to engage in ongoing dialogue with patients about medicines and their conditions. When it comes to patients themselves, what are the sort of questions you'd encourage us to be asked? Asking our pharmacists and doctors. What am I taking this medicine for? Does this new prescription mean I should stop taking any other medicines that I'm on? How and when should I take my medicine? For example, should it be taken with food or after food? Are there any foods, drinks or other medicines to avoid while I'm taking this particular medicine? What are the potential side effects and what should I do if I think I have a side effect? This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. According to the outcome of recent research, four out of five parents are unaware that the estimated half a million children who wet the bed on three or more occasions a week may be suffering from a medical condition. As consultant paediatrician Dr. Victoria McGregor explains, studies have shown that the cause may be due to physical factors that fall into three broad areas. Some children who wet the bed actually lack a hormone, and this is rather a special hormone, that acts on the kidneys to put them to sleep at night so that they make less urine. Now, children who don't have this produce large amounts of urine at night, and that ends up in them wetting the bed. Another group of children find it difficult to respond to the full bladder at night. Thirdly, there's a smaller group of children who seem to have bladders that are smaller than you'd expect for their age. And not only that, the muscles on the bladder tend to contract rather too readily. And so at night, when a small amount of urine goes into the bladder, the bladder muscle starts to contract before it's full and the children end up wetting the bed. Although many children may grow out of nocturnal enuresis, as it's medically termed, by the age of 10, one child in 20 will still wet the bed and the impact of the problem shouldn't be underestimated. The key to reducing the psychological burden is not to ignore the problem and hope it goes away, but to seek help at the earliest possible opportunity. Children can go to local clinics all over the country to have an assessment. In fact, there are excellent treatments available, so it's much better to come in, assess the problem and get the treatment to actually relieve the miserable time the children are having. If caught early, testicular cancer has a 98% cure rate with men between the ages of 15 and 45 most at risk. Yet, research from male cancer charity Orchid has revealed 80% of young people are not able to identify that they are in the age group most at risk and three in four young men don't regularly check themselves for the disease. Robert Corns from Orchid talks us through the telltale signs that guys need to be looking out for. Over 90% of men will first notice a small painless lump which is attached directly to the testicle. About 20% of men may feel some discomfort, aches or pain in the region but the majority meant it will be a small painless lump that doesn't go away and is attached directly to the testicle. 
Robert, I know testicular cancer can happen to any young man, but there are those who have an elevated risk, aren't there? Family history increased the risk. We also know that having had testicular cancer previously, there's more likelihood that it can reoccur. Poorly functioning testicles or testicles that aren't maintaining proper function may increase the risk. And having had a history of an undescended testicle, although this can be corrected in childhood using a fairly simple surgical procedure, the risk of testicular cancer is still raised. And men who are perhaps having fertility problems are slightly more at risk. When it comes to self-examination, it really is so important for all young men to have a greater understanding of their anatomy and to check themselves regularly. And if you do detect something, do something about it. Get your GP immediately. The quicker a potential problem like testicular cancer is identified, the quicker it can be treated and the less treatment potentially that will involve. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Since the National Cervical Screening Programme was introduced in 1988, the number of women dying from cervical cancer has halved. Kate Sanger is from Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust. Cervical screening is a cervical cancer prevention program. It's a really amazing free health test that we get through the NHS, which can stop cervical cancer before it's even started. Women and people with a cervix will get an invitation at around 25, and then they're invited regularly up to the age of 64. What's the screening test look Cervical screening is looking for the presence of HPV. If HPV is found, we will look to see if it has caused any of the cells in your cervix to change. What is HPV? HPV, or human papillomavirus, is a really common virus. There are around 200 different types of HPVs. There are a few types which are called high-risk HPV, and these are the ones which can be linked to certain cancers. The majority of times when you have HPV, the immune system in the body will clear the infection before it has a chance to affect any of your cells. But in some cases, it can cause those cells to change. It's completely symptomless. So a lot of the time you won't know you have it unless you're going for cervical screening. In the case of genital HPV, which is what we're looking for in cervical screening, it's passed by sexual contact and skin-to-skin contact in the genital area. Anyone who has had sexual contact of any type is likely to have been exposed to HPV. And that's because HPV lives in and around the skin, around the genital areas. In the majority of cases, having HPV does not do the body any harm. And it's really, really common. Most of us, around 80% of us, will have a HPV infection at some time in our lifetime. So what happens during a screening test? You will go to the GP and you will be invited to go into the room where cervical screening takes place. Your nurse will give you a small bit of paper to put over your lap, so you're undressing the waist downwards. And then they will use a small instrument called a speculum, which is essentially a tool that helps them to open up the vagina. They can use a really small soft brush, which is then used to take a sample of cells. Then the sample will be sent away to go and be tested in the laboratory for the presence of HPV. Pre-pandemic research suggests that a third of women had skipped their test and around three million women across the UK hadn't had a test for at least three and a half years. According to your research, why is that? Cervical screening is a really difficult test for lots of people, whether some people are embarrassed, some people might be nervous or anxious about the test. Some people also find it really difficult to get an appointment, especially around things such as childcare or work. Some people don't know what it's for or might have had the experience of previous trauma or a bad experience. 
post-menopause, it can also be more uncomfortable and more difficult. But what is really important to know is that it is the best protection against cervical cancer. It's the one thing we can really do to reduce getting cervical cancer. So it's such an important test to go for. Your organisation provides a whole host of suggestions as to how you can make cervical screening easier for you. And we'll have a link through to your organisation from the wordonhealth.com website. Once you've had the screening test, how long will it take for the results to come through? And what if the test reveals abnormal cells? It should take around two weeks to get your cervical screening results. There are several different outcomes of your test. The majority of cases will come back as normal. It might say that HPV has been found, but no abnormal cells, in which case you'll be invited to come back for cervical screening again to see if the HPV infection has cleared after around a year. If abnormal cells are found as well as HPV, then you'll be invited for colposcopy, which is a test at the hospital, which is essentially where a gynecologist or a colposcopist will take a closer look at the cervix to see what's going on and to see if any treatment or any closer monitoring is needed. If nothing is found and you're all clear, then you will be invited back for your next test as usual. Word on Health, on air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, your personal prescription for your very best of health.